Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Rebecca Gale Howell. Rebecca is a Pushcart Prize-winning poet whose debut collection, Render and Apocalypse, won the 2012 Cleveland State University Poetry Center First Book Prize. Eyewear Publishing has just released her latest book, the Sexton Prize-winning American Purgatory, a dystopic exploration of poverty, religion, and destruction. She is also the translator of Iraqi poet Amal Ajibori's Hajar Before the Occupation, Hajar After the Occupation, and a senior editor at the Oxford American. In addition to all that, Rebecca is one of my favorite people. As writers, we share interests, among them class, identity, and our native Appalachia. Rebecca is from Kentucky. I take much from all of our conversations, which usually play out over email, but perhaps especially from this one, in which we discuss listening, faith, and creation as resistance. I start hearing language and I follow it into the dark room of story and then follow it back out into the light. Let's get started with American Purgatory, which is now out and feels very relevant to our moment right now, but I know that I'd seen a few of these poems published much earlier than than the Trump moment. So I, my first question is kind of how long it's been gestating and what seed it grew from. That's a really good question. It began to come to me in 2013 when I was um, just releasing Render into the world. And um, how it came to be was um, my publisher for Render, Cleveland State University Poetry Center, asked the Oxford American to review Render. And um, the editor that responded said, uh, we really don't review books, but we would love to have some new poems from Rebecca. And I had so long admired the Oxford American. I mean, it was the magazine that helped me find myself, or it was one of the main, main little aha moments in my life, um, seeing the OA come into being. And so to be published in it meant so much to me. And um, I sat down to, to, to write for the first time since finishing Render. Um, and I started listening. And what I heard was, um, were the were the five poems that the OA eventually accepted and published in the spring, let's see, 2014 issue. And um, that not only began my relationship with the Oxford American, which um, has led into me being a senior editor there, um, but it led me into American Purgatory. And... Um, those original five poems have been collapsed into um, what is the prose poem or the prose introduction to the book. And uh, and then the book sort of came, al- almost came as it's read, um, poem by poem. I did not know the story that I was in. Um, I got to know the characters very much in the same way the reader gets to know the characters. And I just tried to stay faithful to it and and followed the lines as they came to me. You say that in an interview that I read with you, the idea of listening. If you listen for what was true, the poems would write themselves, uh, which I thought was such a beautiful piece of advice. And I tried to imagine getting it and walking away from the advisor full of joy and then thinking, wait, how do I do that? <laughs> right. Uh, oh yeah, how do you do that? I get frustrated with people when they uh, over-mystify the arts, you know, um, I, because I'm, I am at my core a working-class person, a very practical person. and. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, I think uh, the artistic process is a very practical one. But 
but it um but I always end up being that over mystifier sometimes. <laughs> Two pieces of advice I received very early on in my apprenticeship from my Kentucky mentor, uh, the poet and experimental art photographer James Baker Hall, have have really stayed with me and and shaped my process. Um, the first is writers write. If you're not writing, you're not a writer. In other words, it's it's not about identity, um, and it's not about the ego. It's about work ethic, and whether or not you're working, and whether or not you understand that the work is leading you into something larger than yourself. Right. So that's that's the first answer to that question. Um, the way to do that is to get up in the morning and work. And the second the second piece of advice he gave me, um, or wisdom, I guess, um, is listen and dictate. And I, I can hear him in my head saying that, and of course many other writers have said that um, as well, or some version of that. But that it is possible to be quiet um, and listen for what comes. Go go fishing in the deep mind. Go go fishing in the the nighttime mind and listen. And no matter how strange, no matter how terrifying, no matter how joyful, <laughs> uncomfortably sexy, whatever it is that comes, stay with that thing. Stay with it. Honor it for what it is. Articulate it. Say it. Give it a name. Um, get to know it as it comes to you. Sort of in the way you can perfect your understanding of a language, like a foreign language, you know, have you started to sort of become more attuned to to those transmissions? I think the answer to that is both yes and no. Like, um, no. <laughs> American Purgatory was a very frustrating process. Whereas Render was a very, um, was a total gift. You know, it it came, those poems came and came really fast and came whole um, many times more or less whole in a day. And the purgatory was was much slower. And there were many, many days where I spent in which I spent staring at the screen, listening, and and the voice did not come and the story did not come. And then at the end of my shift I you know, I would go to the gym, go for a run, make dinner, and get up the next morning and try again. The purgatory was a, a story that sort of tested my faith in this process, um, but it did come. And I think that I learned something that I hope will make it easier in the future, um, not quicker and not any less scary, but um, but maybe uh, give me a little little bit of evidence, you know, faith is, you know, in what we have faith in what is unseen or unheard and um, something about the purgatory's difficulty gives me a little a little help with that, I think. Yeah, I'd wanted to ask you about that. Uh, what, you know, there's obviously a religious faith element and, and those overtones, but I wondered what other interpretations of faith were on your mind. But it sounds like that was definitely one of them. Well, the, yeah, the writing process is, is um, a process of prayer or faith for me. Um, prayer is, to me, that listening process. I'm 
much more interested in understanding what I don't know than what I know. And um, I'm much more interested in what there is to hear than what I have to say, you know, Um, to the intelligence I only know to call God. Um, So the writing process is, is, is is a process of faith for me. The book, the story, um, as does Rinder in some ways, draws from my history in the Christian church. Um, And the purgatory particularly reckons with um, the, there's there's no casual way to put this, the commodification of the Christian religion by American capitalism and the American the current American political climate. So, um, you know, Brother Slade is someone who likes to assert authority <laughs> and and um, misquotes Christian scripture a lot in order to distribute his authority, in order to make a lot of noise about uh, his right to know something about this world and this economy. And um, he's often wrong, and he's often a blowhard, and he's often dangerous. And um, I see a lot of the American church acting in these ways. Were you raised with faith? I did it to myself. Um, my mother did not raise us in the church, and um, I don't know, I was around 11 or 12, and a few things happened. I, my, my parents were getting a divorce. My father was dying of cancer, um, and he started bringing me books from the... Um, from the bookstore in the city in which he would go to get his chemotherapy. He was a veteran, so he got to go to the VA, but he had to drive an hour and a half to the closest VA. So on those trips, he'd bring me back books to read. And among them were poetry books, and among them were um, spiritual books. And I really got interested in the sound of the Bible, the sound, the the reading and reading aloud the poetry and the music of the New and Old Testaments alongside Eliot and Dickinson and Longfellow and um, Wickham Riley and just, you know, all all of these beautiful poets that are in the American tradition. So um, in that process, my... uh, my faith sort of became inextricably bound to my writing process and my relationship to literature. Um, but, you know, shortly thereafter, my older sister told me that it was a sin to not go to church, that, <laughs> um, that it was a real problem that I was reading the Bible and not going to church. So I started going to church and, um, and had my experience with that for a while until I until I realized that she had been wrong about that. I want to zero in on what you said about the sound of it, because the first time that I met you and heard your work um, was at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium this past year. Mm-hmm. And you read there uh, some selections from Render. And it was to me like, have you ever seen the movie Mulholland Drive? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I felt like I was in like the like Silencio Club in Mulholland Drive. Like it was like <laughs> you just felt kind of the air go out of the room mm-hmm. and you know you you sang some lines and and so I'm just I I was very curious about when the sound becomes part of your process and you know if you're composing out loud if you're when you kind of bring that in. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that kindness. Um yeah, sound was really important to me. I mean, so I was that little kid, and I was I was very alone and very scared, and I was reading poems and the poetry of the Bible out loud to myself so that I could hear the song in it. 
Um, and that was my beginning. Um, and it's, it's still so, I, no matter how many degrees I get in, in the study of poetry, at the end of the day, it still reduces down into, um, distills down into a, a moment in which the human mind, and by mind I mean imagination, um, is married to the human heartbeat. The dance and the language become the same. And, um, or infused with each other. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I composed by reading aloud to myself. Um, when I was at the Fine Arts Work Center the first time I was writing Render, and I was living in this apartment, and there was a guy upstairs writing a novel. And I remember, I remember one day he came down and he said, dude, you just got to stop. I can't concentrate. Because <laughs> I just, part of that listening process that I was describing a few minutes ago really is a process of, so I hear a line, I might open render here, so I might hear, um, learn your lesson from the calf. And I may not know yet what that means or how the poem wants to move or how, where it's going to go next. So I just say that to myself over and over again. Learn your lesson from the calf. Look how he rams his head into the cow's sack. Look. Okay, so then I try to get my imagination around that, you know, and my mouth around that and my heartbeat around that until I hear the next part of the sentence. That's fascinating. Weird. <laughs> 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 For me with, uh, you know, just with prose writing, it, I feel like it's more of a, it comes much later. I want to hear what it's like for you at, with prose. Um, tell me. Like I'm thinking of, of the novel project because that's what I've been working on the most lately. And, and there are pages of that that do, that did come out in the way that you describe some of Render coming up. And I feel like they have their own sort of cadence, and it's much richer in a lot of ways than than some of the other pieces. And so then I think part of my editing process is sort of making everything feel as close to that, mm -hmm. you know, purposefully mm -hmm. as you can, which I think is a little bit dangerous, maybe. But um, but a lot of times I think I just do it to see to make sure I haven't done anything wrong in terms of this sentence is too long, this paragraph is too long, that kind of stuff. It, it is kind of practical, I guess. Maybe that's the journalism muscle. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that there's some of that. I think I just maybe don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't incorporate it that early, but it, it makes me wonder what it would be like to experiment with that. I'll have to do that. Yeah. It might be worth, a month of practice and see what happens, you know? Yeah. I've been playing, I guess the purgatory led me to this place I'm in right now where I'm really wondering, um, like, and I mean, I don't mean like asking a question about, I guess I mean that, but I also mean like I'm in wonder of the music of, of the English sentence, whether or not it's broken into lines. And um, the purgatory has English sentences that are broken into lines and, and then some that aren't. And being present with that process and letting that come into being um, has me in this new space where I'm, I'm really interested in pushing into that. These poems I'm working on now are very long-lined and very jagged when they're broken and and I'm working on um, a couple of prose projects, too. So the prose introduction of the purgatory, um, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, in some ways began as poems, and then I pulled them out of their line breaks, which is, you know, so different than the process I just described with Rinder, where I was 
I was so close to the line and the and the break and the the syllabic work of the sentence that every sort of movement, every gesture was gravity, you know. And here I am in this very different process with the purgatory, willing to pull things out of breaks and think of them as prose and what what happens when sentences heard as prose, as seen and defined and named as prose. And is the music strong enough to hold up to that? And if not, why not? Um, and this this first this this first bit of prose that opens the book really um, has led me into where I where I'm working now. Perhaps much in the same way, I, I can look back now and realize that the last section of Rinder really led me into the way uh, the the American sonnets and the Purgatory wanted wanted to sound. I'm thinking as you're saying that that I'm looking at this uh, this quote that I keep on a on the sticky app of my MacBook and I just like keep it open all the time. Um, this book, What Belongs to You, have you read this? This guy Garth Greenwall? No, but he's he's been on our tongues a lot in the office lately. Tell me. Yeah, so I and the book has been on my list forever and I've just bought it. I haven't started it yet, but I I read this interview with him and he is a poet. And there are a lot of things that I think I needed to hear about self-censorship and moving yourself forward and keeping moving forward. But another thing that I like about it is he says to be patient in the moment that he's writing in and to sink into the present and ask, uh, you know, what's being experienced in that moment. And he says, inherent to narrative is a kind of horizontal forward movement in time that urges you to the next event. I wanted to resist that and instead create these lyrical moments of exploration. I do think it's a poet's way of writing fiction. And I don't feel like a poet, but that that felt very significant to me. Feels true to you. Yeah. To your process. Yeah, well, maybe you're a poet. <laughs> don't be scared. <laughs> <laughs> Come over to the dark side with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, part of what I'm I'm thinking about, well, I want to say two things to that, because that is a that's such a good so that's a good friend that you're keeping there, and that's sticky. Um, um, one thing I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, the prose writers that I want to read almost always also had a practice of poetry and translation. And um, there was no this this academic sensibilities of specialization which is really a capitalist model of the mind to specialize, to be really good at your one widget um, is not, is not the artistic model. And I, I think we would be wise to be careful to, as we turn our minds over to the Academy to get degrees, to get jobs, um, to remember, study the practice and apprenticeship of writers who came well before all of that. And those writers, it seems to me, really just wanted to be around language and the song and the story that's embedded in the song, no matter what form they were working in. There was no sense of needing to label yourself or draw the box. You didn't have to say you were a professor of X and get tenure in X and publish to, to get the next promotion and the next promotion. And, you know, all of that stuff is, is a very, like I say, it's just a very capitalist model for learning. And um, it's not the only way. So I want to say that. And then I also want to say, um, that my sticky in my brain is very similar, and um, it has to do with the second fellowship, the, the second winter I spent in Provincetown at the Punters Work Center, 
Alan Gerganis came to visit, and he did a great Q&A with us and a couple of days of just visiting and sort of holding our hands and helping us along and watching TV with us, (laughs) you know, just being present. And he said to the fiction, he said to us, to all of us, you've got these eight months. um, It's your job. You're building a bridge from one canyon to the other. And during these eight months, just get the, get, get the string across the canyon to measure it, get it all the way across. That's all you have to do is just get the string all the way across. And then you can go back and start filling in the pieces and parts of the bridge for stability. In other words, prose writers, write to the end, sketch the end of the book to the end of the book, and then go back in and work that language and fill in scene and story and character. Layer and layer and layer until the bridge is built. And that's the process you're describing, I think. And... um, the horizontal process and Jim Shepard came, I don't know, maybe a month later and hung out with us and same kind of mentoring. And I talked to him about that and I said, um, gosh, I really, I really loved Alan Gerganis's visit. I loved him. I felt so challenged by this piece of advice. I'm working on this purgatory myth that's poems, but it's also story and it's so frustrating. And I, it wants to come one sentence at a time, and I don't know what's happening, and I'm about to lose my mind. And Jim said, oh, that, yeah, that's really great advice for, for prose writers, but you've got to ignore that as a poet. <laughs> You're like, Jim, I'm in a really fragile place right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, please solve this for me. And he, he was like, yeah, the problem is the advice. This is not for you. This, that advice was not given to you. You know, he said, even if it's a story you're involved in, you're working in poetry, you've got to hear this, you've got to hear it sound by sound. Um, and that's that vertical process, I think. So that was that was very helpful to me because it's not that the book got any easier. It continued on into the very next winter and um, on into a great deal of abyss trying to figure out what in the hell I was writing, what what I had given myself over to. Um, so, but, you know, I had, I had Jim's good, good counsel there with me saying, just, you just got to take it one sound at a time. And, and I mean, that's the job. (laughs) When you're writing, you aware of this, are you thinking in books, I guess is my question. You know, are you aware of a sort of larger narrative forming or do you only later think, oh, these pieces are siblings? I, the answer is both yes and no again, and I'm sorry. I do think in books, um, but not in the way that you're describing. I'm, I am aware that repeatedly my imagination wants to work on a whole arc. Um, and so that's what I mean about thinking in book. Um, for me, repeatedly, the book assembles into a, the the work assembles into a book-length poem, basically. That's not because I sit down and say, oh, well, you know, the economy class crashed in 2008, and we have this um, incredibly terrifying conservative right gaining enormous amount of political power. <laughs> and... Uh, wouldn't it be this is the this is the best time to sit down and adapt the purgatory myth, and so I'm going to do that. I, that's not what happens. What happens is I start hearing language and I follow it into the dark room of a story, and then follow it back out into the light. Um, and that happened with both Render and the Purgatory, um, and it's happening with these poems I'm working on now. I didn't. I didn't know Render was a book until I was about until I'd written three three quarters of it. I knew it by the time I was writing the last section. I still didn't really understand what kind of book it was or what story it was telling. Um, and I'm finding that that is also true about the Purgatory in some ways. That it's not until I have some distance that I'm reading it as a reader reads it that I come come into a 
an aware state of what it is. I love that because, you know, like you had said, not to romanticize the process, but it really does give you that moment of wonder of like a part of me was doing this the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, I guess I just have signed on for the idea that um, our intelligence and by our, I mean, human intelligence, but I also mean animal intelligence, the, the collective intelligence is, profoundly more complex and mysterious and connected than our frontal lobes (laughs) would have it be. The human frontal lobe would have it be that, that, that capitalist analytical part of us. Um, So I know that I can I can analyze with the best of them. I'm not interested in my frontal lobe being shut down. I'm just not interested in giving my whole life over to it. And it's certainly not the most interesting or the most captivating, most curious, most driving part of um, this thing I call uh, Rebecca. Um, whatever, Whatever intelligence this body contains. Um, I'm interested in mining or, uh, you know, going underground, going into the, as I said, the nighttime mine, what my teacher, Jim, James Baker Hall in Kentucky used to call the nighttime mine. Um, you know, that part of us that speaks to us when, when our guard is down and most of us spend most of our human energy, most of our lives trying to stuff that down. Ignore it, deny it, quiet it, busy it, medicate it. <laughs> yeah, medicate. Yeah, right, right, right. And and I want my practice of art to be listening to it and learning from it and um, trusting it. Nothing has ever, nothing good has ever come to me by denying what was uncomfortable, by turning away from it. And a lot of bad things have come to me by practicing that denial. All the talk of frontal lobes. Uh-huh. brings up that um so so i was i was reading back through purgatory just before we spoke and i i thought i had the right idea in my mind of what a cistern looked like and i and i wanted to be sure so i did some googling and there's a cistern in your brain as i'm sure you're aware no tell me it's like i mean it's it's beyond my medical understanding but it's basically like this this little divide in between these two sections of your brain wait let me go find the result and i was like oh that's so perfect and i wanted to know if that was something that you had been thinking about i no i didn't know that existed but that that doesn't mean that the poems didn't know that that existed you know that's what i'm talking about like i uh Knowing that now reveals the last poem of the purgatory to me in a very new way and in a way that feels really true and right to me. Um, But I I can't take credit for that. I don't know what any of these words mean, but a cistern in neuroanatomy is any opening in the subarachnoid space of the brain created by a separation of the arachnoid and pia matter, pia matter? Uh, yeah, so somebody, some listener with a medical degree can tell us what the hell that means. That's right. Please do. <laughs> I do remember reading an article, this person who specialized in neuroscience and also was interested in poetry, um, I think, was arguing um, that that listening, that idea that artists have heard 
language, you know, and dictated it or seeing images that it's one part of the brain speaking to another part of the brain. Do you feel like there are questions that you keep trying to answer with your work? I'm sure there are. And if I make it to 80, I might know what they are. I mean, I can look at the purgatory and I can look at render and I can look at my choice of Hazer to translate it. And those three projects are not unlike each other. Um, I am very worried (laughs) about the way we treat each other, about the way we treat our habitat, the way we create economic justification for cruelty. And I think that those questions are in, in my work so far, and I know they're in my heart. I've been very fortunate to have a very sporadic correspondence with Wendell Berry and a friendship over the miles. And, uh, you know, he's he's kind of always telling me to cheer up, like, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he sent before I wrote Render, I remember him saying, um, basically, oh, dear one, don't despair, you know, that, that despair, despairing is for the lazy and that hope is the hard work, and that work gives us hope. It's like the people after the election who were, like, joking about moving to Canada. <laughs> You're just, like, yeah, maybe. opting out. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, or just shutting shutting down and feeling like your hands are no good. And, um, you know, and I remember in that letter, you know, work is what gives us hope. And I remember him saying, you know, find find a little job to do, find, find a seed to plant, find a speech to write, find a poem to memorize, you know, and, and that it would levy my spirit. And, and so I did, I wrote Render and not that Render is a (laughs) lighthearted book, but, (laughs) but it, it, um, it led me to an essential question about tenderness and uh, how we negotiate tenderness or its absence in our lives and in each other's lives. And coming to that question, thanks to these poems, um, me a lot of hope because suddenly I understood that I could, I could wake up every morning and choose tenderness, no matter how irritated I was with person X or situation is, I could still, I could choose, I could step back and choose tenderness. And that's good. That's given me a lot of hope. I had read an interview with you in which you talk about corresponding with Wendell Berry. And I thought it was really funny because I have had similar email exchanges with uh, our mutual friend, Ronnie Lundy, who, if you're listening and don't know her, she's a phenomenal Appalachian writer and cookbook author, and she's just written a beautiful cookbook, Fiddles, um, of, of, you know, more regionally focused despair, more, more just precise despair. But, you know, the same the same sorts of things of just like what you know, like, what's the point? Not kind of, and not in a, not in a nothing matters nihilistic kind of way, but just in a, like, what can, what good could my contribution possibly be kind of way? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, things are very overwhelming right now. Yes. Yes. And I had originally wanted to talk to you about that just to, to discuss the role of mentorship in your creative life, because it seems like it's been quite meaningful. But, but yeah, I think that that feeling of despair and, and what you choose to do with it, I think is a very necessary question right now. And I'm trying to very much live by the notion in 2017 that creation is resistance. Hmm. Oh my God. I believe that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I, 
two things are coming to mind. One, AWP just came and went. And if you're familiar with the business world of the literary pulse in America, you're, you're familiar with the mob scene that is AWP. And it's exhausting to me. Um, and But I was lucky enough to be there with um, a poet who, and a writer who's now become a friend, Nick Flint, and we were signing books together. And he's famous, of course, and so he was sort of surrounded by a bunch of people. And um, I remember I was getting ready to sit down at the table where we were supposed to send books, and I I overheard him saying about um, Trump and the advent of uh, people beginning to mobilize, you know, the courage to mobilize. I think someone asked him, "What what are you doing?" You know, and Nick sort of, I, he sort of hesitated, and he said, "Nothing yet. I, I, I want to be quiet for a minute, and 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 really figure out what I can do." And that helped me. So I'm offering that to you. Um, I think there's some wisdom in there um, for for artists. And um, the second thing I'll when I was sorting out my life in my early twenties, whether or not I was going to, I wanted, to, I, I thought I was, I was going to, I thought I was going to move to India and and work for Mother Teresa or become a preacher or something in the church, you know. And um, I was sorting that out against my other other feeling about literature and, and devoting my life to literature. And I read Thomas Merton, who's a um, who was a hermit and a Trappist monk and a peace activist, um, and a writer of many volumes, a diplomat between Buddhism and Christianity. He says, there's the life of action, and there's the life of contemplation. And he had lived the life of action in New York, doing humanitarian work, before devoting himself to contemplation. And he said, you know, in this, if I'm paraphrasing, but what I gained from it was the life of action is very um, powerful, of course, and, and also very fine because you get to go to sleep at night and feel like you did something. It, it, it happens in real time. And the life of contemplation is equally a change agent, but it doesn't happen in real time. It happens for the sake of people you will never see or touch, and it happens across time and place. And when I read when I read that, I thought, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna devote myself to writing now." In that moment, it was that clear. That was the moment, yeah. And I began apprenticing. I took a class with Nikki Finney. She was my first poetry teacher, and then I. Uh, apprenticed under James Baker Hall, and the way it is in Kentucky, um, at least it was then, uh, mentoring. We didn't have an MFA program in the whole Commonwealth, sort of blissful that way. And the way you you came up as a writer was to be apprenticed and, and to be sort of in the community around hanging out and being in people's lives and seeing how your elders built the life, you know? So Wendell was around. Um, Gurney Norman was around. Nikki Finney was around. Crystal Wilkinson. Um, and many, many others. So um, that I did, I, I lived that life for uh, 12 years before I went and did an MFA. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that that decision, and then you went on to get a PhD. Um, well, when I did an MFA, I knew I still I, I still knew that I did not want to leave Kentucky. I wanted to be able to write from my home place, and I knew very deliberately that I wanted to study under Gerald Stern. And so I only applied to the program that he was designing and directing, and. I'm so thankful that that's the decision I made. It was a low residency program um, at Drew University, and 
I there not only studied with Jerry, but studied um, with the people who were in his community and who had been his students. Um, and so there was an ethos of of it was a, it was a formalized program that deepened my understanding of craft exponentially. Um, while also maintaining that ethos of relationship and mentoring that I that had been native to me and that I I really still still hold as so such a prize um, and that I feel like is missing in a lot of American letters the the the, the study of, of becoming a writer in America now um, so that was that was that. And then um, immediately um, I received the fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center, and my life changed. Um, Hazer was accepted for publication. I wrote Rinder. Rinder was accepted for publication. And I just, I just wanted more time to write and to read. In Kentucky, I was working a, a non-tenure track faculty line at a small Appalachian college, and it was a 4-5 load. Wow. Yeah. Plus summer classes. Um, I love to teach. I'm not a person who complains about teaching. I, I truly, deeply love it. But um, wasn't getting a lot of my own reading done. <laughs> and uh, so I applied to I applied and, and got into the PhD program um, where Curtis Bauer was and who I wanted to study with and where my friends from the work center were, Chloe Honeman. Jacob Shores Arroyo, and uh, and we spent a few years together, banging around Mother Texas, reading and and writing, and it was great. And then I went back to the work center and lived there, and at the Carson McCullers Center, and and back in Kentucky on fellowship, and um, helping out at the Oxford American. Are you having to balance then your writing with a are you in the office every day? How has that transition been for you? I am in the office every day. Um, it's not an easy transition for me. Um, I am figuring it out. <laughs> I I really like um, my writing and reading practice. My writing and reading practice is slow. I I try to have a daily practice of reading and memorizing um, that is ostensibly separate from my writing practice, although sleeping and exercise and all of those things get it all mixed together in this really wonderful way. But I, I, I spend a lot of hours working when I'm working. I do it at the same time every day, and I try to keep a really strong ritual component so that my just, you know, my animal body can help me, can help support the system, you know? What does that routine look like? Mm, I get up in the morning. I read, I make coffee, I read over what I worked on the night before, and I'll explain that in a minute. I make any notes that come. Then I transition over to reading, and I keep a reading journal, which is usually one of those large sketchbooks. And I'm rewriting passages and studying the syntax of a poem. I'm noticing how, I don't know, how Gwendolyn Brooks is working across stanza with her syntax. I'm noticing, um, I'm reading a critical book on the economic implications of cotton across the last several centuries. I'm making notes about that. I'm just studying the history and just on its own merit and making those notes. All of that goes into those hours. And then I take a break. I, I have a dog that's really important to me. I walk her. Um, I make lunch. Then I start working, uh, writing. And, and that's that sitting and listening space. And even if, as was the case with the purgatory many times, even if nothing comes, I stay faithful to that space. I stay faithful to the listening until that shift is up. And then I go to the gym and run, make dinner, 
before I go to bed, I look at what I wrote that day if I if I was able to write something. Um, and I just look at it. I just read it, read it out loud to myself, memorize it, whatever it is I'm going to do. And then I go to sleep. And I bother to say that because I really believe sleeping is a big part of the process. And oftentimes I have found that the problem of the poem, what isn't coming, what isn't revealing itself, will reveal itself after a good nap or a night's sleep. So that's why I look look again first thing in the morning before much of anything else happens. And now that you have a day job, what are you are you does it look like taking time away to get those full days or do you kind of try to squeeze in a little bit in the morning? I'm not a morning person, so that doesn't that doesn't function well because I have to be at the office by nine. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a nine to five job. Um, I, I'm finding my way. It's, my pattern is broken up. I'm not, um, I'm missing it. You know, I'm grieving that, that luxurious ability to really devote my, my whole being to the work. I'm learning new ways to work. I'm these jagged poems that I'm talking about that I'm working on now are um, coming in flashes and they're coming, they're really grounded in the news and uh, what it's like to be, they're grounded in my eye, you know, when they're in American Purgatory are not grounded in my own personal eye, their imagination. And these are, these are me talking about things that are actually happening or things I'm hearing happen in other parts of the world or other parts of the country. Um, so the process is shifting that way. And we'll see. I wonder, because of this unique transition space that you're in right now with, with the job. So I very often struggle with this idea of what, what my ideal day should look like, you know, what that goal is actually and kind of balancing you know not wanting to sort of live the penny pinching grad student life again with um with making the the space that the work that I really want to do deserves and so I'm kind of always thinking about that and trying to figure out what methods work best for me anyway and then just the other day I was listening to this episode of a podcast I quite like called Creative Pep Talk and he was talking about uh I think he was actually just talking about like sustainable income, but he said we all act like our ideal is this open-ended day to do all of the work that like really lights us up that we really love, but we can only be that creative probably at max like four hours in a day. So what are you doing with the rest of that time? And I don't know. It was just another interesting kind of layer of that question that I keep trying to figure out the right answer to. Like, for instance, I think for I think my kind of default approach is to try to do a little piece of everything that I am working on in a day. And I'm realizing now that I think that that's really inefficient and doesn't really produce great work. So now I'm kind of trying to make like day long blocks of like, this is the day you're doing client work. This is the day you're working on the novel and kind of putting everything in one big space and seeing how that changes things. Um, but you've, you've kind of been on both sides of that. So, and when you describe your fellowship lifestyle, it seemed like maybe a nice balance of, you know, maybe it kind of gets away from that four hour burnout problem because it's a lot of, it's a lot of reading, a lot of thinking. Um, there are some nice changes of rhythm in a setup like that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think it's different for everybody, and I think, um, you know, the modernist, the 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 upper middle class male, white male modernists, sort of acted like there was one way to do it, you know. And women, the women's poetry movement, the women's publishing movement that happened in the sixties and seventies and eighties, thank Christ, um, what we call the second wave sort of said, to hell with that. Like, it, 
I've, you know, I've got, I'm a single mom. I've got five kids or, you know, whatever the, whatever the situation was, women's lives were so complex and so without privilege, even when they were privileged, that new models were being offered. And um, I want to say that especially to a woman, a woman writer, woman artist, to be gentle and tender to yourself and to listen to your own natural rhythms and your own deep mind about how your best self wants to work and see how you can help encourage that and enable that. Um, You know, I'm describing the ideal day for me when I am working and working peacefully and and, tr- and with trust. I'm also a working class person and I started working when I was eight years old, you know, and my parents were working 16 hour shifts opposite of each other. My father would wake up at three, walk to the diner, work until six or seven at night. My mother would take us to school, start her shift, work till three or four in the morning. Family life took place in our diner while we were working, while I was waiting tables, while I was mopping the floor and shutting down the front of the house or washing dishes or whatever needed to be done. So I also have this very practical side, you know. And when I have a, when I was freelancing, you know, when I had a client that needed me to do something, I I found it very difficult to tell the client to wait so that I could do my work first, you know. Um, it's very, it's the, the part of me that is scared about money, the, the part of me that knows what it's like to not be able to make rent, knows that if I don't work twice as hard, then I might as well not be working <laughs> for money, I mean, you know. So, you know, panics. And that panic is is a very intoxicating, very driving force, you know. So um, I'm just as much of a car wreck as, as anybody else. But having been blessed with the opportunity to figure out my natural rhythm and to listen to my mind, um, you know, that moment when the finance work center called me and gave me that first winter, that was the first time in my life when I didn't have a constant running anxiety about how to make rent, how to pay the bills, how to make sure I had enough to eat that month, how to how to cover the basis. I had health insurance thanks to Mitt Romney. I had a place to live. I had money given to me, and all I had to do was write. That was the only request, you know? And that freedom, that freedom from the, the burdens of our capitalist economy um, taught me so much, so much so that I was willing to live on $10,000 a year for the next many, many years in order to continue to buy my freedom. So, you know, it's, um, it's going to be different for everybody, but, um, and there's no right way. I think we can all just sort of say, hey, this is what I did in case it's useful. What at this point does creative satisfaction look like for you? It's it's that space which I am my whole body, my whole animal body, my whole life, my mind is giving over to the process. It's that process. It's being in the process. I I want whenever I die, I want to be able to look back and and know that I spent more days in that process than not. That would give me great peace. Whatever comes of it. I mean, I think the books are like the Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs. You know what I mean? Like, they're the fossils we leave behind. They're the breadcrumbs we leave behind us so that others can find the how. And I I just want to be in the process, getting it my goddamnedest, being faithful. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com. 
and find us on Twitter and Instagram at WMFA Podcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.